I wish to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation on whose land I made this recording. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Hi, welcome to The Lead Candidate, the show where we aim to understand what makes for a great leader in science. I'm your host, Dr. Simona Carboni. This next chat is with Jennifer Hertz, the founder and managing director of By Intellect. This is a strategic planning and marketing research firm whose mission is to bring science to the market. We also chat a lot about the work of Carl Herz, who's the managing director of BioSelect, a pharmaceutical company, whose mission is to build pathways to patients. So you might have heard a bit about BioSelect in the news lately, and that's because they're the sponsor for the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine. So this interview was supposed to feature both Jen and Carl together. We were going to talk about how their businesses work together and how they collaborate with each other and with their partners. At the time of recording, the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine hadn't been submitted yet for TGA approval and Carl wasn't available at the time. However, we had a great chat with Jen and we covered everything that I wanted to cover in terms of questions I wanted to ask them about how they work together and how they manage their leadership in their own companies and in working with each other as well. So enjoy. Thank you very much, Jenny, for joining me on the show. It is a pleasure to have you here. You're welcome, Simona. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So the theme of tonight's uh, discussion is around collaboration, uh, working with people and working with different businesses um, and understanding how leadership fits into a very collaborative environment. Uh, so both you and Carl work uh, within your own separate businesses but also those businesses work together um, so you're quite collaborative in that sense um, but then your the nature of your work and the other companies you work with is also incredibly collaborative as well um, so to get us started do you mind going into um, what your roles are uh, what your businesses are and um, what your roles are in, in these businesses sure so we have um, two companies the, the first one is biointellect um, I, I, I call it the first one because it came first, but but I think it's um, it's probably um, it's the precursor, but the longer term vision is the second one. So both Carl and I had backgrounds in the pharmaceutical industry. We came up doing sales, marketing, business development, project management, general management. And uh, after a period, we didn't really want to work um, for anybody else anymore. We wanted our own businesses. We'd had a great career careers in the big pharmaceutical companies, including a stint overseas. But we really wanted to be entrepreneurs. And, and I suppose we thought, well, if, if we've been able to successfully build revenue, build teams for others, why wouldn't we want to do it for ourselves? So the idea really came about sticking to what you're good at, which I think is a really good message for anybody. Um, so we started off with the consulting. Uh, in particular, I, I've got quite a strong background in commercialization of vaccines and the phone was ringing when we returned from overseas for people that wanted help with strategic planning for vaccines or market entry. So that's how BioIntellect started. And what we do really is um, we help products that are coming to market in the medtech and pharmaceutical and vaccine space, anywhere from really early preclinical pre stage when they're typically coming out of a university right through to launch and in market, which is typically the domain of the bigger companies. So anywhere along that commercialization journey, we can help them with 
navigating their path to market, you know, they're looking at um, all aspects of that. But when we started that, I guess Carl was not that keen on consulting. Um, you know, his core skill set really is probably in sales. Yeah. And 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 we reasoned that, well, if, if we do this, we're bound to come across some companies that want to launch products in Australia that actually need a vehicle to launch them. And so that's how the idea of BioSelect was born. So, um, and the idea was that either relatively small niche products where you don't necessarily need a Pfizer or a Novartis or a Sanofi size organization um, that we could that we could offer a solution to launch those products in the market. And also for companies that didn't have a presence here at all. And, and Novavax is a good example of, of that. So BioSelect came a few years later than BioIntellect and and it really now provides us with a bit of an end-to-end solution because the, the consulting business helps build, you know, the business case, the strategy, the approach. But in terms of execution, um, BioSelect can actually put a product in the market, act to sponsor with the TGA um, and, and, you know, um, manage that product in the market and all of the aspects that, that go with that. So that's what we do. I love that. Um, there's a few things to unpackage and all that before we head into the more leadership aspects of what you do, but a bit of a few things I wanted to tease out to help the audience understand your company. Um, one thing was I saw uh, the workflow described as a, a bespoke, trying to come up with like a bespoke solution for pharmaceutical companies um, trying to launch in Australia where they don't have an established background. What makes it that quote unquote bespoke? experience I guess I think in some respects every product is bespoke mm-hmm. um, so yes there are cookie color models but you know if, if you go back to the pharmaceutical industry in the 80s and 90s there were probably some um, you know big breakthroughs in products I'm thinking of you know um, statins for cholesterol lowering or or ACE inhibitors for cardiovascular disease that had a particular marketing model, but particularly today where there's all these um, novel technologies, advanced therapeutics, um, and you know, every product really has um, a unique approach to the market. So, so, you know, I guess in one respect, you can say everything's bespoke, but what, what we can say is that we probably have um, the edge in terms of our skill set and experience in products that are a little specialist. So vaccines would be one example. Celebrine therapies would be another example. Um, uh, Biosilects in commercialization of IVDs devices. So when you think about, um, you know, the med tech and pharmaceutical sector, firstly, you've got medical devices, you've got in vitro diagnostics, you've got small molecules, um, you've got biologics, and now you've got mRNA and, and vaccines and all these different technologies. So when you consider that everything's got a unique technology type, it might be in a unique market. I, I didn't mention before, but we don't only operate only operate on Australia. We we do international work, so every market's different. Yeah. And then thirdly, every therapeutic area is different, whether it's diabetes or malaria or um, eye disease. You know, every therapy area is different. So I think broadly, I would say that any pharmaceutical industry launch is bespoke. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And gosh, you must have to be across so much, uh, so much literature, so much understanding of, um, well, not just the science of the product, but the science of how it's going to work as well. Um, It's a huge 
um, breadth of areas that you're covering. It, it is, but I think what I would say, I mean, in, in our teams, we have a lot of people who are um, um, PhD qualified and real specialists in their area. I think the skill set we bring is probably the generalist skill set. It's the being able to tie it all together and ask the right questions rather than having deep, deep knowledge in all of them. You can't. So the, the, the point really of commercialization is to understand the process understand the methodology, ask the right questions, and then find the specialist skills that you need. So I can't possibly know the deep science behind every technology. Um, and I, I don't understand the, the depth, whether it's health economics or regulatory or clinical or supply chain. I'm not the technical expert at the deep level, but I, um, I've been in a general management role as managing director of a of an Australian subsidiary. And in that, you, you have to put everything together. And I, I think that's what collectively we do at BioIntellect and BioSelect. There's, there's a lot that I want to ask within that <laughs> and something I want to come back to from before. But one thing I might uh, chase now is um, you saying that you're the expert in the more generalist area and asking lots of questions. I want to come back to this idea of asking good questions, but um, that idea of being comfortable with not being the technical expert in things, um, was that something you had to get used to or is it just the nature of the different roles that you've had that you've just become accustomed to it? Um, I, think, I think it's probably a skill of mine. I've, I've always been quite happy. Um, I mean, I, I got into the industry relatively relatively young. I was 23 and I got a job as a sales rep. And I actually had a, de I have a degree in geology, which surprises a few people. Um, and um, I was going to be a pilot like my dad. So, I mean, I had no intent to get into this industry at all. I suppose I've always had a comfort with not knowing what I don't know. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it comes a little bit from sort of an interpersonal confidence, um, which I would probably thank my parents for. <laughs> um, and then in Carl's case, you know, I think he would probably say more it comes from the skill of being a salesperson because, because as in most things in life, when you're interacting with other people, whether you're trying to sell them, something or make friends with them or whatever you want to know a bit about them to make sure that you connect on some level yeah and that that inquire you know it requires asking questions which mean and, and, and actually I've been thinking I should ask you one because I launched into some quite technical stuff there and I don't actually know your um, background in terms of what you know or don't know about our industry and our sector no, that's okay. That's that's why I'm here to ask you questions about it. So that's all right. I have been doing reading on on what you do yeah. and your sector as well. Um, so I am I am catching up. My background: I'm a basic scientist, a researcher at Monash Uni. Um, I study the gut. The gut has its well. I'm sure you went the own little uh, brain, own little nervous system called the enteric nervous system, um, and that's my area of specialty. Um, so. Okay. Yeah, I'm an electrophysiologist trained, but um, I do gut physiology now. As well. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so no, not vaccines. Uh, <laughs> although a the mRNA vaccine, there's been a lot of talk about that at my institute. 
um, because we've got a, a you've got a, an inventor there of an mRNA vaccine. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah correct. Um, <laughs> so, but we're very much getting across that at um, at my institute for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so maybe you know, um, you know, I, I'm not an academic, and and so I never did a PhD. But for those people that do. It seems that a lot of people fall into a specialty by virtue of the mentors they meet, the labs they're in, the direction that, you know, they find themselves in, right? And you can apply research as a discipline to any topic, right? Yeah. And I think, I think it's much the same in, in commercialization now. Um, what we've developed over the years, and we're certainly not alone, it's not unique to us, is, is a solid understanding of of the commercialization process. And that allows you to ask the right questions and <clears throat> put together the solutions for the companies. And then we always, we sort of describe our model as a bit of a plug and play. So we have this sort of broad senior management team with lots of depth of experience in launching products. So we've probably got seven or eight people in the organization that have all been in big pharma companies and they've just launched lots of products in lots of markets and dealt with every aspect of that. Yeah, And then we've got a layer of um, younger people who are usually PhD qualified, who've got scientific specialties, but are really excited and motivated to learn about commercialization. So the way our model works is that they'll go away and do the research on the topic. And then they'll brainstorm with us, you know, the strategy of how you might put stuff together and what the, the issues and the problems are that you're trying to solve for the clients. Um, so, so you can see it's about having a methodology, having someone that does the depth, but, but even with our team, we've got, I can't even remember. I think we're up to 35 or 37 people across the two companies. Now we always have to go externally for expertise. So yeah. if someone came to us to launch a new product for, I don't know, irritable bowel disease, we would go and interview gastroenterologists or basic researchers or, um, just like if we're doing something on pricing reimbursement, we interview policymakers and health economists. Yeah. So again, it's the skill of knowing what you don't know and being able to ask the right questions and then having a strong network and the ability to access it, to plug in the bits that you don't um, have internally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a bit of my work involves collaborating with industry. Mm. And so I'm um, across that relationship of working with industry and the way questions are asked. And that's something being a young um, PhD graduate, postdoc, you, you're very scared of um, not knowing the answers to questions or asking a question that, that might be silly. Um, but I've watched how people in industry work and for them, it's just, well, I just want to understand. I don't have time to, to be worried about things. I just need to understand what's going on so I can move on and solve this problem. So here's my well, question. That, yeah, that's a really interesting observation because I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an industry advocate and I spend a lot of time in, in the academic world and I sometimes get frustrated because I at times perceive that industry makes more effort to understand academia than the reverse but actually what you've said has just thrown a bit of light on that maybe <laughs> it's that the very nature of industry facilitates the ability to ask those questions whereas yeah. the very nature of academia probably um, puts up some barriers to that right yeah yep absolutely and I've noticed for myself now I've changed my attitude and I will just ask a question if it's something I'm interested in or want to understand or want clarification on 
And it turns out that majority of the audience or the people around me will be thinking the same sort of thing. So then um, that enforces, you know, that idea of you just have to ask questions. Okay. So um, yeah. actually the nature of, of that idea, and we, since we're talking about question asking, I'll, I'll jump into the part um, about looking at by intellect's website um, i loved how you listed out a series of case studies about the way you will take um, someone's problem say if it's someone from a biotech company or a organization like a university like a research lab that's wow. got a product that they want to see if they can if, if it's something that's worthwhile if they can get it out to the market or if they want to find the right um research funding for um, you know applying to a certain program and you've got it listed as a case study and a series of uh, questions and establishing purpose um, to to figure out what it is that they want what, and what how you can get it yeah, yeah yeah I love that yeah. how does that process work when you're working with these people who who probably think they know their idea and where it's going to go and how it's going to work. How do those discussions um, unfold when you're dealing with people who are leading in different ways in that situation? Oh, look, I think that there's um, there's no set recipe for that. It depends a lot on the style of the person. So um, as a general rule, scientists are passionate about their science and their invention. So if you're talking to scientists, they tend to want to tell us in exquisite detail how things work. And um, I'm usually not very interested in that because I, I start <laughs> with the foundation of believing that they probably understand that they've invented something that, that works at the level they're talking about, right? Whereas I'm thinking about how do we turn this in, into a product? So, so I would say across the board, we have we have to find out, you know, what, what is the invention? Um, and the first thing is classifying it. So my mind goes straight to a few things, um, you know, everybody's learned a lot about COVID vaccines and you know that the core thing is getting them approved by the regulatory authority. So one of the first things to understand is what is it? Is it a device, a drug, a biologic? Is it software as a medical device? You know, is it a drug device combination? Is it a diagnostic? And then if it is a diagnostic, what's its intended use? Is it, is it screening? Is it treatment monitoring? Is it diagnosis? Because the minute you start to unravel that, you will understand the regulatory pathway and how it's going to be classified by the regulators. And then you start to unpack what data they need to see to approve it. So that, that's a, a very fundamental thing. The next fundamental thing to understand is, you know, intended use or indication and thinking about the patient, you know, what, what's the disease you're treating and what's the current pathway? So if you're a patient with disease x or problem x how would you be managed today and what are all the decision makers along the way so you know who's the clinician who else is involved in the decision and what management would you get with that disease and then where would this fit and then you start to think about um probably the patient journey that but also who's going to buy it ultimately is it mm. is it something that a patient buys in a pharmacy um, is it something that a hospital formulary sticks on a list? Is it something that a government acquires in a tender? You know, so, so that, that's how you unpack it. And, and for us, probably going back to your original question, a lot of scientists, they, they don't think that way and nor should they because that's not their expertise. 
Um, so the most common thing you see is that people think they've got something that solves a problem, but because they haven't thought about it in that way, they, they haven't really been able to articulate the value proposition. Yeah. Because it's, it's got it, you know, to have something of benefit compared to what somebody else is already using. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other thing is scientists are often fairly myopic, um, given how much, I mean, that they, they probably read an awful lot of academic journals, right, and they keep up with the literature in their space, but you can find an awful lot of information on the internet. And we find, you know, basic information about the competitive landscape is, is often unknown because they've just never looked. And, and they possibly don't really know where to look because that's, that's the skill set we've developed. We can find stuff quickly. We know where to go. We know what's good quality information. So, you know, you, you become good at that just as scientists become good at what they do. Um, so, so the usual things we have to unpick is, you know, what is it? It's classification, the regulatory pathway what's its value proposition which is usually understanding the current treatment where it would fit and the competitive landscape and then putting all that together is well well have, have you got something that is going to be useful and then we get we can go into much more depth and numbers around that so we can forecast the revenue opportunity we can forecast the likely price they might get we can look at uh, what that means for the value what someone might pay for it all of those things so I imagine in that situation or with that process that you will come to certain situations where perhaps the forecast doesn't look great for the product, for example, yep. um, and it's not likely to be successful for whatever reason. Perhaps if it's a drug, it's not going to be more efficacious than what's already out there on the market. Um how do you can you cite a time maybe where you've had to navigate a conversation like that and say, look, Sorry, but this isn't going to work out. How how do you do that? What's your approach? Yeah, I, I can probably give um, what one springs to mind for a company that had a product um, that was pretty much approved in the US by the FDA. And the nature of the markets were that it was going to be a prescription product in the US, but an over-the-counter product in Europe. And we were asked to look at a European business case. And the difference between that classification basically meant you could get a price of about $300 in the US and about 14 euros in Europe. Oh, gosh. And the cost of goods was about 10 euros, right? So the actual business, by the time you did the market analysis for Europe, it, it just didn't stack up. And we actually built a model, you know, interviewed people, forecast it. We, we did probably the top five or seven markets. I can't remember, you know, Germany, France, UK. We we got volumes of competitors. We forecast what revenue we thought they could get with their product, which which did have some advantages, but then the cost of goods, but then the cost of market entry in Europe because you have to go through health economic analyses and um, pricing reimbursement in some markets, less obviously not for the over-the-counter products, but just that whole analysis um, showed that it wasn't worth launching in Europe. Now, the group we were presenting to was um, a fairly sophisticated group um, who understood the business, and they just kind of laughed and said, great job, we won't bother with that then, right? <laughs> so, okay. Um, you can contrast that with, you know, founder scientists, when it's their baby they've invented, they typically don't want to hear that. Mm. And so reactions can vary from either not believing the work we've done or um, we, we've had we've had somebody take one of our models and change all the assumptions, and then 
<laughs> that's one way to do it <laughs> yeah so because we do we do provide some flexible tools you know because so it's quite useful to have something you can play with what if the price was twenty dollars what if the cost of goods was 10 would that make sense you know um so we do sometimes provide them with an actual excel file they can play with um we, we obviously have to put disclaimers on that because then it might not be our work um <laughs> So, so you look, I would say as a general rule, people overestimate the market potential, underestimate the development costs. And, and you know, like in everything in life, some people are open and willing to hear what we share and a few are not and ignore us. And I mean, the only thing I would say, and this is certainly a minority of people, but as a taxpayer, it frustrates me when there's stuff that frankly just shouldn't have any more research money spent on it. Yeah. Um, and and people that are you know good at getting grants just keep going for years and years and years and they get more and more publications but they're never going to have an impact on a patient yeah and that that can happen right and that's that's not a good use of research funds I mean I I recognize the value of having blue sky research for for that eureka moment so it's can be you know maybe it will turn up something else useful right but we're not good at as a rule at killing stuff that should be killed I would say in yeah uh, in the sector yeah again I think that's a real that's a difference in my work in academia versus my work in industry where you'll yeah. just have people in the middle of a meeting saying in industry meetings saying should we kill this idea like is it done yeah and, and you know those conversations I don't know that I've actually heard that conversation properly happen in academia is this idea done um yeah yeah because people are so invested in it um yeah yeah, and so 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 you know, in in a way, it's interesting because um, um, I, you know, I, I'm going to tread carefully with how I present this, um, especially since I know it's all being recorded and you're going to write it up. But <laughs> you know, as a general rule, sweeping generalisation, um, industry gets a little more tarred with the brush. Yep. You know, when when it comes to, um, I guess standards ethics you know the for-profit motive is seen to provide um to pervert things and, and cause conflict of interest but actually i i see more of it um <laughs> yeah. i think sometimes in in research where the vested interest is is the the investment in the research and the project uh and there's far less accountability actually about the dollar that's spent on it yeah that's because you, you know you can win grant you have to win the grant but but the measurements of what you output, it, it's not the same rigor in terms of achieving KPIs in industry and meeting yeah. milestones and you know what I mean? Yeah, I was about to say I was about to say that, yeah, in industry you've got um yeah, KPIs, key performance indicators or targets. So milestones will be um did did you achieve this? Yes or no? Yes. Well, okay, not not only on. that, we've got shareholders. Of course. And, and we've got regulators and we've got compliance rules from government right so um across the board every aspect of what you do in our industry is is highly scrutinized and regulated regulated and you, ha you have to be fully accountable for everything whether it's compliance with the law whether it's following regulations whether it's declaring conflicts of interest now academia absolutely has all the same rigor on a lot of those things but the actual output is not necessarily I think held to quite such robust criteria. I mean, certainly it is in academic journals, but in terms of patient impact, do you see what I mean? Yeah, or even like for the grant itself. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 
Yeah. yeah there's definitely yeah. things like, did you get papers out of it? Okay, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but do those papers necessarily relate to the grant itself? I don't know that there's always that cross-check. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not, right. not an unfair yeah, yeah. statement. Yeah. Um, just to go back to something you said initially, uh, one of the reasons why you and Carl established your own businesses um, was that you had uh, an entrepreneurial side um, to you. So uh, being an entrepreneur or having that um, desire to follow that that pathway, um, would you have said that either of you were uh, born leaders or have you naturally become one as you've settled into your various roles? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, I think I think it's a bit of both because um, I I think that I'm I've got enough humility to recognise that if I've got a skill set and there are things that I'm good at, it's absolutely down to the training and the life experience I've had, not because I was born with it, right? <laughs> so yeah. so I I think I think you learn it on the job. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry does train people pretty well. So, and the training's not only in the technical skills that you need in the industry, but but they do quite a lot around, um, you know, leadership, um, interpersonal styles, um, you know, behavioural styles, and you, you know. So, so I think the leadership training is probably pretty good. Having said that, I mean, um, and and I also think. Leadership can come in many forms, right? So, yeah. so in some strange way, Carl and I have quite a lot of sim similarities. Um, I mean, I'm probably more of an extrovert than him. Yeah. But we're both fairly competitive. Um, you know, we both started our careers in sales reps. We're both, as sales reps, we're both quite good at it. You know, so we both got rep of the year and got awards and things like that um yeah. we're both quite curious so we you know we, we went skydiving together when we first met we're sort of fairly adventurous and outgoing and I mean not anymore because I'm too old for that sort of stuff now but <laughs> do you know what I mean when we when when we met we were somewhat similar in outlook I suppose that's how we got together um but yeah it's a hard question so there's got there's got to be something in in um it's like everything else right is it is it nature or nurture I think it's yeah. a bit of both yeah um, that's not an unfair answer for sure <laughs> not an unfair answer for sure and I should mention in case people are wondering as they're listening that um the two of you are are married as well so yes <laughs> um just so people aren't distracted and wondering um while they're listening to this podcast um but yeah in your businesses the way that they work you uh well you you collaborate with a lot of people so how do you choose who you collaborate with um like do you ascertain what their core values are what their working principle is or do you just accept as long as the project's interesting enough do you just accept accept the job and take it from there how, how does that work that decision process well I think um fundamentally you know we're, we're we're in business to um run a business so you know we we don't we don't if people come to us for help and ask for proposals for consulting work I mean I can't think that we've ever turned anyone away because 
we didn't particularly want to work for them. We, 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 we sometimes have had clients who, for one reason or another, the job might have not gone that well, which might be down to, um, it might be down to difficult personalities or it might be down, often when jobs don't go well, actually, it's down to a, a lack of common understanding about the scope. And, then you, and that's horrible for everybody, right? Because they're not happy and you're, you're not happy. So no, we'd, we'd um, not to make this sound the wrong way, we, we will do work for anyone, right? Because essentially in biointellect, this is, I'm talking about, yeah. it's a fee for service, right? So our, our model is to charge money for our time and do consulting work and deliver a, a report or a workshop or, or whatever it is they want. Um, but, but that's not the only type of collaboration we have. Um, we have to collaborate a lot with um, other consultants uh, and and absolutely, you know, the usual fundamentals of collaboration are there. You, you need to have a good working relationship. You need trust. You need transparency um, to get the best out of it. And clearly, you want to work with people that are like-minded in your values. Now, we ju- we just did a collaborative project with a company called CBE, Centre for Biopharmaceutical Excellence, and they have specific expertise in um, GMP manufacturing commissioning validation of pharmaceutical facilities and, and all of the quality systems which we don't have that deep expertise and, and and a few of us in this collaboration made the comment that we we just fit like a glove we felt like we were part of the same team so when things like that are really obvious you you, you seek them out to collaborate again so, so I think yes there does have to be um, a fit in terms of culture and values and style yeah for BioSelect, it's a bit different because he, uh, Carl is entering into licensing agreements, right? So his model is you're an overseas company. So I might take the example of one of the products in Carl's portfolio is um, Vivitif. It's a typhoid vaccine. And he's licensed it in from Emergent BioSolutions who are based in the US. Now, unfortunately, nobody's traveling at the moment. So yeah. we're not selling much <laughs> travel vaccines, right? Because the borders are shut. But yeah. that, that aside, um in that type of relationship it's it's probably a deeper longer term relationship because you typically enter into a licensing agreement for several years but they also take longer to get into you might have a period of a year where you um are discussing terms due diligence negotiating agreements so so that you know the sort of scope of those deals can be different in nature whereas someone might come along in biointellect and just want a quick job that takes two weeks and we turn it around and invoice them and we're done. But but we do have a lot of repeat business. We've got a number of clients that we've been providing services to for seven, eight years now. I think with Carl, I was reading, um, so he's got a, a, one of his high-profile high partners is with uh, 60 Degrees Pharmaceuticals, right? Yeah. And he already had an established relationship with them. Is that correct? Was that the company that well, he had a relationship with? Yeah, well, well, we we did. So, so um, when you go back to how I started at the beginning, the synergy between the two businesses, we always recognised that through the consulting, we would find companies that wanted a distribution partner. Mm-hmm. So, the origin of the relationship with Six P was actually that I got introduced to the CEO Jeffrey Dow back in 2013 because he wanted to start an Australian subsidiary. So he had a US company. And um, are you familiar with the R&D tax incentive here? Have you mm. heard of it? No, I'm not. So, so the government has um, uh, 
a quite a generous incentive for doing R&D in Australia, where you, you actually get um, a refund on your R&D activities. Oh, wow. So companies that are based in the US, and it encourages them to set up a, an Australian subsidiary um, to do clinical trials here, for example. Yeah, I've seen a big a big push for yeah. clinical trials, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and so what it, it's it's a stimulus that the government's created that will attract overseas investment, right? Because you'll think, well, okay, well, I'm going to go and do my trials in Australia because part of the cost of that trial is going to be um, given back to me as a as a cash incentive from the government, right? So right. it's to encourage more R and D, build the ecosystem, build the skills, attract the business. So Jeff wanted to do a study in Australia with 60p. Um, and he needed to set up an office to do it. And to do that, you need a, a resident director. You need an Australian with a an Australian address. And that was me. So ah. he asked me to be his director. So we had this consulting relationship first. And then as the product, um, which is Tefenequin for the prevention of malaria, as it got closer to market, um, he started to talk about, well, you know, I'm going to need to find a distribution partner in Australia. And, and that was where we put Bioselect forward. So now... Carl is his partner for that for that product in the market, but I'm still on his board. Yeah, I so saw you're still listed. Yeah. Your LinkedIn profile yeah. still has you listed as a director, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. That's a really great example of how you've all worked together. And yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so just since we've touched on, uh, well, a couple of times we've mentioned how something will happen uh, in BioSelect and then you'll see an opportunity, um, sorry, in BioIntellect. Um, because really that's how BioSelect started, right? You had started BioIntellect first. Yep. Um, after yep. your stint working overseas, um, you that's right. You started BioIntellect. Bio um, and then there was a particular job I have, I, I think it was with CSL, is that correct? A particular job that you'd landed and you realised you needed someone with exactly Carl's expertise yes, yes. I think you might have read that in Med News or did I tell you that I can't no remember. I read it I read it in Med News yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so back in um back in 2015 um CSL well bio CSL as they were called at the time which was the vaccine division of CSL acquired Novartis influenza vaccines yeah so Novartis sort of got rid of its vaccines and they sold some off to GSK and the flu vaccines they sold off to CSL and and that became Securus which is what it's called today yeah um, and we got engaged by Securus to help with the um, commercial integration so they basically had to glue these two organizations together and to do that you had to look at the all the different markets they were operating in basically work out how big's the market is it public or private meaning you know government tender or driven by sort of GPs and hospitals and, and healthcare providers um, you know, how many people do I need? How do I organize my my company? And should I have a direct presence in the market or should I appoint a distributor? So we had to help um, Securus go through that exercise. And uh, and I went to the kickoff meeting in the US where, where the Novartis and the BioCSL teams came together. And as I came away from that meeting, that was when I, I had this, okay, I'm going to need to hire someone to help. And and actually, Carl had exactly the right skill set because as as a sales person, you spend a lot of time evaluating the market and working how many people you need, right? So he'd done a lot of that type of of work. So that's when he joined. So that was April 2015, um, and it was probably also that year that 60P was starting to think about mm -hmm. um, a distributor. So 
we, we, we had already created Bioselect. It was just sitting quietly in the background doing nothing. Um, oh, and then it, I see. And it, it started gearing up in 2016 because uh, the first product that came into it was from 60p. Um, and then that product eventually got licensed, um, let me think, end of 2018 and launched 2019. And we were just starting to get some sales and to grow that product and and then the pandemic hit and again it's it's malaria prevention it's travel so yeah <laughs> so we had to pivot to something else <laughs> um which turned out to be covid so yeah exactly well you see yeah. you, well that's one of the reasons why um you're both quite busy at the moment right um you're yeah. working with uh, well the novavax vaccine getting getting that uh into australia and i imagine that's been a huge project and um, was one of the reasons why Cole unfortunately wasn't able to make it tonight because of um, that undertaking. Um, I mean, I guess that this wasn't a question I had planned, but is there a lot of scrutiny on your business? It's quite a high profile, particularly in the current environment, anything to do with COVID is very high profile. Um, yeah. how, how do you handle that, that pressure, I guess, if that? Well, I mean, there's this scrutiny at multiple levels um the probably the the most difficult one to handle if you weren't well equipped for, for it would probably be the media mm -hmm. <laughs> um so, so you know both Carl and I have had a degree of media training fortunately for us um you know Novavax hasn't been particularly prominent in the news I mean it's there right but we haven't but but obviously the vaccine's not here yet, and that's that's coming soon. And um and I imagine you know there'll be a fair more bit of, quite a lot more work when it when it arrives than than there is at the moment. So what we've been doing in the last sort of seven months is obviously getting the team prepared to bring it in. So getting you know the the regulatory the, the supply chain everything in place. Um, Novavax is another example of, of of the synergy of the two businesses because BioIntellect. Um, has been um, well. Novavax has been a client of BioIntellect since 2014, and they also have been operating in Australia for seven, eight years, doing clinical trials here. Right, right, right. And and then it, and then they went through the uh, you know as, as they obviously were in discussions with with the government about the the, the um, purchase agreement that they have. Um, they had to think about well, on the ground, you know, how are we going to operate. Are we going to set up our own office, or are we going to partner with someone to do it for us? And and so we we got um, appointed a sponsor in BioSelect to to bring the vaccine in for them because you have to have an Australian company to do that with the TGA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nice. yeah, that, that that's a lot of work. I mean, it, it's you know on one level um, we've been doing this quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've I've launched probably twelve vaccines in the Australian market. Um, wow. and, and, and a lot of the team that Carl and I have managed to gather are, are equally as experienced. They've all been doing, they've, they've either worked for GSK or Sanofi or CSL or somebody. Um, we've got a very experienced team of um, people that have just done it before. Yeah. So we, we didn't take any chances. I mean, that was very deliberate. We've got a, a crack team and they all know what they're doing. That's uh, brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's experience that, alleviates pressure but doesn't mean there won't be some of course of course yeah absolutely um just on your team I've noticed that you've got team members who are on both 
teams. Uh, so how does that work in terms of um, for those individual team members? Do they have like a buyer select hat on? Is that very clear versus a buyer intellect hat on on another day? Or um, do does it matter from like project to project? Might they move around? How, how does that management um, of the various leaders work in that situation? Yeah, well, so 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 for the most part, people are employed by one business or the other, right? Mm. So they they have a, an employment contract with they're, they're two different entities. Mm. Um, the reason you see some of them on both websites is because, you know, we're we're bigger than we were, but as a relatively small organisation, it, it makes sense to share skills, right? So yeah. that happens. That happens particularly with um, with regulatory affairs, for example, uh, where we've got you know we've got people in the bio intellect team supporting aspects of work for Bio Select. So I mean, it, it's not too difficult to manage. People know who their bosses are. They they know who their uh, sort of core day job is, and then it's just like dealing with another client. If if one of the biointellect team is kind of seconded to work on a biosolect project, it, it might be like any other client because they're logging their time for that and and we manage it. So um, fair enough. That sounds all very structured and easy. Yeah, That's I think good. it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, and and I I think you know as a as a as as founders and owners, part of the appeal for us. We, we love the opportunity we got in big companies to move sideways and learn. So we also embrace the idea of sort of agile teams and flexible working and seconding people on projects. You know, the, your, your, best, um, your best outcome as, a, as an employer is if people are happiest and performing at their best where, when they're doing what, what they're best at, right, where they can use their skills. Yeah. And yeah. so I think in this day and age, um, everybody's moving to more flexible, agile workplaces. And, and as a smaller company, that helps us attract people because people are quite attracted by the breadth of the experience that they can get in our group. Yeah, that's a really lovely uh, thought that that you have that, you know, that you've got that in your front of mind for your employees. Um, that's pretty cool. But also for your businesses as well. Um, I guess that's how smaller businesses survive and grow, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it helps you attract talent because, you, you know, we can't compete with bigger companies in some respects, right, in terms of we don't have quite the same career progression opportunities. But um, but, but for sure, especially working in, in bio, well, both companies, I mean, there's not, nothing more exciting at the moment if you're in our sector than working on a, on a COVID vaccine or therapeutic or something, right, because you really yeah. can hope that you're going to make a difference um and that's what most people are in it for yeah um so there's that and then on the bio intellect side it's just i mean last year we did 100 projects so any one of our consultants it could be working on 15 to 20 of them in a year just imagine what you learn about the different technologies the different therapy areas the different customers you interact with the different markets you evaluate i mean it's it's phenomenal learning and um that's really cool that's so cool it, yeah, and I so I think we we tend to you know attract people who've come from science but got a passion for commercialization and and they're attracted by the breadth of and um, the exposure that they get um, to so many different things. Yeah, I love that. That's amazing. And just on your thought about um, how um, rewarding it is working in the COVID space in the moment, I imagine the fact for the first time the whole world is really interested in 
the development of vaccines or treatment for <laughs> a disease, which has never happened, I don't think ever. Um, but, you know, it obviously has its pros and cons, but, um, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Like, you've got attention, which is which is Well, really- well it is, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of ironically amusing too because we spent many early years in the business saying, oh, we've got a lot of depth in vaccines, but really we need to not become too dependent on that and <laughs> broaden, uh, broaden our uh, reach, right, which, which we've done. We certainly don't, I mean, we're probably... I don't know, probably 30 or 40% of our work is in, in vaccines, but but we do it in many therapy areas, you know, oncology and, and diabetes and gene therapies and cell therapies. But I was all about trying to diversify, but then it, it turned out that um, the depth we have in vaccines has come in pretty useful. Yeah, and, and it's infectious diseases more broadly as well. Sure. Yeah, no, that's yeah. definitely worked out well for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask Carl about, um, and I mean, you come from a, a sales background as well. Um, he had listed on his LinkedIn profile that he's good at, or one of his skill sets is optimizing cross-functional interfaces. Now, I admit, I had to look up what this was, but it's um, working with people from different expertise towards a common goal. And in fact, you've got that listed in your LinkedIn profile as well. Um just not as prominent. Carl had it like right in front and center. Um, so why is this so important in a marketing setting? Um, and what's the most important element to get right when you're in this environment, when you're working with people with different expertise but towards a common goal? Yeah, I think there's 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 probably two core aspects. The first thing is um, big organizations can suffer from getting siloed, right? Yeah. Um, and particularly when you look at, um, I, you know, I, I can I can think of plenty of examples in, in bigger companies where y- you literally can find that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Right. So there can be a lack of alignment between whether it's clinical and commercial or regulatory and commercial or supply chain or whatever. So somebody's working on a set of assumptions here. And, and, and in a silo over here, someone else has got a slightly different set of assumptions. So it's about joining the dots. And it almost comes back to what we said at the beginning mm. um, of, of um, being able to ask the right questions to join the dots, to make sure that every. And, and I guess fundamentally, um, you know, in, in what I do, that's about strategy, right? So strategy is joining the dots of all the pieces to to get strategy right and and with Carl it's a little bit more execution based in rolling out products and I think that's what you do in sales again because you've got to kind of understand everybody's needs and put it together yeah Um, so it's a combination of of understanding the technical and functional different parts of something and how they fit together and then on the people side as well the different interests and motivations right because at the end of the day like anything in life you get success when you've got alignment around a common purpose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting what you're saying about sales then. And I think one thing probably that we should maybe tease out a bit more is people mm. who don't come from sales from your perspective probably see it as, you know, just thinking about, oh, just just selling you something. You know what I mean? That sales is just yeah. selling you something. Yeah. But you're describing identifying a need and a purpose and if there's a market. And that's obviously, that's highly research intensive. Um, so, yeah, do you have to convince people in who come from a more academic point of view the value of, of that kind of approach and that way of thinking? Do you have to, I guess, sell it to, to them, that, that idea? 
look, I think I think there are a lot of. I mean, um, oh, that's that's a there's so many ways to unpack that question. So, <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is definitely there are people who say, oh, that's just marketing, right? So they kind of think that marketing is not easy. You do at the end, like you make a nice glossy ad to advertise your product so that people will buy it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's so much more than that because because it's about getting the positioning right and understanding. And it, and if I pair it back to, we, we all go shopping for things, right? And yeah. um, I I may st- have started my life as a, a salesperson, but I'm probably the first to get irritated <laughs> if I've got a salesperson in my face. Yeah, and they're getting it wrong, right? And I just either I just want to quietly browse, thank you, because I'm not really in a buying mood today. I'm just looking, or I know exactly what I want and I don't need any help because I've bought it before, and yeah. I haven't got the time to talk or whatever it is, right? So, so um, you know, the the skills that I think you need in sales, or I think the skills that you need in everyday life, it's about finding common ground for people and finding solutions. So. You know, I think none of us like to think we're forcing a product on someone, right? Yeah. Any more than we want to have a product force on us if we don't want it. But yeah. when you want something, there's nothing better than having someone that's really knowledgeable that can answer your questions about it and get it to you at the right time, the right place, at the right cost, which I know sounded like it came out of a book. It probably did. but <laughs> <laughs> No, I love it. No, that was good. That was really good. Um one thing I noticed about your profile is that you have been on um, a lot of different um, like policy-related um, committees and advisory committees and that sort of thing. For example, in Australia, you have been on the National Health and Medical Research Council. You're currently on an advisory committee um, and Medicines Australia as well. You've been on an advisory committee for that too. Actually, I have, I've, I've chatted with um, Elizabeth Sissoma from Medicines oh, yeah? Australia as well. Yeah, she was really lovely. Right. Um, yeah, she's good. yeah. So, uh, what do you get out of being on these advisory committees? Why do you do it? What's the benefit for you? Well, um, it depends. Sometimes, I, some some of them I've been very deliberately sought out because I thought they would be valuable for my my career, my profile, and I would learn something new. So, so absolutely. Others I get invited to do, and. Um, I'm probably not like most people. Probably not that great at saying no. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I have to get better of it because we're too busy, right? So, so I, I try and be selective. So, so I mean, if if I run, but being I, the first board I was on, um, uh, other than you know being a director of a company I was working in, was, was the Medicines Australia board actually, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was I was relatively young. Um, I think I was in my sort of mid thirties. That was a fantastic experience because of the exposure you get. So usually, uh, that's my motivation: is I'm I'm getting exposure to something new where I'm learning and I'm building a network. Um, and and I think, but both Carl and I are probably quite. We really understand the value of networking, um, and we quite enjoy it because we're, we're both quite interested in, um, you know, meeting people networking yeah finding common interests um so so that's one driver um i mean i I think i'd like to think it's starting to evolve into also wanting to give back so some of the stuff i do is more you know mentoring based or contributing 
a particular skill set. Um, you know, and it's you have to be more selective there because that's just pragmatic, right? We're really, really busy, and and I can't say yes to everything. Yeah. Um, but but certainly we we like to think that um, one aspect of showing leadership in commercialization is giving back. So we we do quite, you know, we do quite a number of sort of pro bono lectures and education activities. A lot of our team are involved in mentoring STEM students through the IMNIS program, things like that. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, nice. and, and they really enjoy it, you know. So, um, so, so I think, you know, it's always a two-way street, right? So there's something that you get out of it for you and then there's something that you're contributing. And, again, that's what's satisfying for most people. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, on networking, given that the two of you are, um, love networking so much, do you have a, um, a strategy or a tip for a person who perhaps isn't so good at networking, how they can do it better? Well, I, I think, um, not to sound like a scratch record, but, but it is back to finding common ground, right? So it's no different to what we were talking about in sales. There's nothing worse than having a sort of polite, stilted conversation just for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been in situations where I'm networking for the sake of business and then I found myself, you know, perhaps sounding like a pushy salesman and I hate myself for it afterwards, right? I mean, we've, yeah. we've all done that when you're, you know, when you're building a business and you're enthusiastic. Um and the best networking is usually when you actually try and meet the person, not not the function and the job, and you find some common ground first and find common interests. And they usually end up being professional because at the end of the day, most people in a job that want to be successful want to network with other professionals that have, you know, something to add value to what they're trying to do in their profession, right? So I think it's about the common ground mostly. Um, in terms of advice, I do I, where I can. I try and do a little bit of research about people that I'm going to meet, particularly when it's important and you've got one opportunities. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll try and look up their background, their education, where they worked before, and I will try and use that to find a point of common ground. And I mean that that may sound contrived or manipulative, but I think that's just how we build relationships isn't it yeah definitely. And, and you have you know you have to be a bit more systematic when you're doing it professionally as opposed to if you just meet someone at a barbecue and you're just having a chat then it just it happens naturally or it doesn't right yeah yeah but, but to make the most of it professionally I, I think it's worth doing your homework yeah it um it gives you a chance to maximize the small amount of time or window of opportunity I guess that you've got if you know at least one yeah. thing about them you can start asking them about that so that's yeah, right yeah that's fair enough yeah. um thank you this has been really really fun um so to conclude each interview I asked the same series of questions um, and perhaps you can answer this from your perspective, unless you know Carl's answers to these questions as well, um, which which I'll could be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to hear what he he might think of your interpretation of his question, of his answers. Um, but who do you or who have you learnt the most from about leadership? Um. Oh gosh, I'm going to have to think about that one. Um. <laughs> In terms of who have I learned the most from, 
the thing is, I, I think what happens is you draw from all the individuals that you encompass and all the things you see. So without in any way sounding arrogant, the thing I've learned, the person I've learned the most from is myself because of the mistakes I've made and diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm fairly reflective and 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 um like anybody, I do stew over mistakes and, and think about them. Yeah. So, so in that respect, I think I've got to say that the it's not that I've learned I've learned the most because I think I'm great. It's because I've analyzed my mistakes, right? And seen where I could have done it better. In terms of any one individual, that's really hard because every time you see someone present, every time you you know, you draw something from you. And and I'm I'm struggling now to think of people that stand out. I mean, I've certainly had some very influential bosses. Um I, I you know, most of the people I've reported to. I've learned an awful lot from. Um, I, I worked. I, I well, maybe I'll do a shout out to the French, you know, because uh, Sanofi Pasteur was fascinating because I really learned working for them um, the the different aspects, not only of the culture and the language, but also that the approach to business and, and, if you like, the business culture, the way you think. Um, and I learned that for, of, of many years of reporting into French bosses and working with French colleagues. And then we went to live in France as well. And you learn, um, I mean, even just watching TV and radio over there and, and watching Francophone TV and you realise they actually see the world a little bit differently to the way the Anglophone world is presented in UK, US, Australia. Yeah. So, so I, I would like to draw upon the fact that I've probably learned the most from different cultures and, 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 and understanding how people interact differently and how the business processes work and how relationships are built yeah. and that that teaches you to not sort of take anything for granted um I mean look there's some fabulous people in our sector um and and we all we all know each other pretty well whether it's Liz DeSoma or Sue McClemon or any of these folks um it, it's a fairly tight-knit community and I think a lot of us are um We've got strong professional relationships and a lot of mutual respect. So there's there's a lot of good people in the sector. Julie Phillips would be another lady I have a lot of respect for. Um, Michelle Burke, all Lorraine Chiru, all the all the sort of usual suspects in our industry. Um, I'm waffling. No, that's a great what answer. You have... from lots of different areas. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, and what I don't know what Carl would say. I mean, we learn a lot from each other too. You're very lucky that you have each other to bounce things off of. It's great. Well, yeah, and I mean that—that's that—that's a blessing and a curse, right? Because um, there are moments where you're going, "Stop talking about work already!" Right <laughs> to, to each other, because yeah, our daughter works in the business too, and even our son is part time. So that's I saw that. Intense, yeah, right? yeah. So there's four herses on the website, um, <laughs> and ben, Ben's at university, so he's only part time. But Emily works with Carl full time. Um, and we all currently they're they're still at home, right? And so so that can be intense. And there are moments where you just have to go stop. Enough. We're not talking about work. Yeah. But on the flip side, when you you know when you've got stuff on your mind, to be able to play it out with someone that absolutely understands everything about what you do can be really um, you know comforting, helpful, and you le- I think you learn a lot. Yeah, and very understanding as well, right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's no, that's a great, that's a great answer. I love it. I love it. Um, what are you grateful for that being a leader has provided? Um, 
the yeah the the thing I well at the moment we're grateful frankly for the livelihood because I I just look at how many people that are entrepreneurs who've been impacted by the pandemic and you feel so lucky that yeah. you know our, our business is going well um but it's got to be the people I mean we're so proud of the team they're awesome you know we love it we had a we had a fun um we decided because it's been challenging in lockdown you know you can't get together we had a a trivia night last week and That's fun. Uh, uh, a few people were tasked with planning it and they decided to make it a spooky trivia night for Halloween course yeah and we all, we all had to dress up so there was 35 people dressed up as pumpkins or vampires or skeletons or ghosts or murderers or zombies and and that was a lot of fun so I love it's, it. it's great building a team and it's rewarding when when it's your own company right you can feel proud of that but but again in the past um you know this international community of biotech people um I think the thing I'm most grateful for is all the all the friends I've made all around the world and all the um, the learnings of that. You know, I, when I had my job at Sanofi Pasteur, I said the best part of it was that you, as a general manager, you're part of an international team with, with the general managers of all the other countries, right? So when you, when you go to a team meeting, you're with the head of the Philippines or India or Poland or Turkey or Argentina. And, and I love that because to this day, when we travel, there'll be someone I can look up who becomes a friend. Yeah. So I think... The, the people all around the world would absolutely be the best thing about our careers that's pretty cool yeah I like that too and I've got to say in academic academia academic science going to conferences and the friends you make yeah it's pretty fun it's probably the same thing right yeah yeah it's really nice it's really nice lovely yeah um what would you want to achieve to feel like a successful leader um well I think there are I mean, ultimately, in building a company, what you want it is to be, you know, sustainable and successful, right? And and I think, um, you know, but BioIntellect's quite well established now, and and you know, we're we're pretty proud of what we've built. And then BioSelect's still in the growing phases, mm, mm-hmm. so there's a little bit more to do. So you feel a great weight of responsibility with. 30 odd employees right what you, what you want is to build a sustainable business and you hope that they're all happy and that you can continue to employ them and um you know I, I don't I don't know quite what the future growth prospects of the company is yet we I think we're too busy betting down what we've got to yeah to, be, to you know five years ahead yet so I haven't haven't got that far in goals definitely when Carl and I started this business we always um we, we'd we'd love to think that will be successful enough to ease back from the day to day and and give back somehow um we've always had goals around philanthropy so i so i guess if the business was successful enough to allow us to do that that would feel like a a huge win as well that's pretty cool oh i hope you get there i'm sure you will i hope you get there yeah yeah i'm back i'm back and the ride's pretty exciting either way so um it's good it's, it's you know we we've been very lucky and had a lot of fun met a lot of people and um and learned a lot it's been very enjoyable so far and at the sometimes end of the day, a little bit harder work than we want this year but yeah I imagine yeah. <laughs> yeah. well at the end of the day if you can't learn and enjoy what you're doing then what's the point hey so I think that's pretty no, cool. that's right yeah 
Um, well, thank you for chatting with me tonight. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I hope I've managed to ask you some good questions as well. <laughs> oh, now I'll, I'll go away and wish I'd answered everything differently, won't I? Because that's what people do, but that's okay. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, and thanks a lot for the interest. I really enjoyed that chat with Jen. Um, she was so open with her answers and um, very thoughtful um, with her responses to my questions, which was great. And I feel like we got a real insight into um, the way Carl works and um, his role at BioSelect 2, um, which is just wonderful. And I felt like maybe she might have learned something from me as well. So that's really a nice bonus as well. I hope you enjoyed that and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of The Lead Candidate. We're now available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and even on Google Podcasts. So you can subscribe to the show to find out when the next episode's available. It would be really handy if you could give us a rating or a review. It helps other people who might be interested in the show find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Lead Candidate, or one word, or on Instagram at The Lead Candidate. Why don't you send us a message if you've got any suggestions of people we should interview. We're really loving producing this content, so I look forward to getting the next episode ready for you.